Daniel chapter 2, starting at verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you are lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mystery showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. 
Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honour and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. This is the word of the Lord. I think there are some... Whoa, hello. Sorry, Simon. I'm too loud. Um, There are some ads on TV which I think are fantastic, and they stay with you probably until you die. Um, They not only get you to watch them, but you learn that song or tune that comes with it, whether that's Bunnings, Carpet Call, or Lubemobile. Uh, The aim of their ad is that catchy song that will get you to change from who you normally go to, to them. My favourite TV catchphrase, which I, I now use in even normal conversations, you know, it's a clever ad with that great jingle, you know, from little things, big things grow. Or maybe not, maybe that's just me. But, you know, they've got all those happy people with their hands, you know. It's like some sort of weird cult. Um, and they want you to join the many others who have put all their life savings into their hands. You know, they've got all those smiling people, those nurses who have the same income, but the amount that their super grows increases because of the person that goes with them. You know, and you watch the ad, and it's a lot of pressure. You know, because <laughs> you know, it's quite convincing. The numbers are there. They should, if you put your super with them. But it would be foolish to change super funds or to put all your money into super right before a global market crash. You would end up losing everything. And if you knew it was coming, if you knew that super funds would be completely wiped out in 10 years or our government imposes another lot of heavy sanctions on them, it'd be stupid to start investing now. But we don't, we don't know the future of our finances. Um, but it is similar with our culture. You know, we live in a culture which seems to be and wealth here in Australia. And there's that call to drink deep from it all, from every aspect of our culture. The call to affirm um, what seems to be ever-progressing and the world's sexuality, its views on marriage, on God, spirituality in general, where God is but one option and where all roads seem to lead to heaven. And there seems to be more pressure coming. But it would be less if we just gave in, if we just stopped listening to the Bible and listened to the culture instead, put all of our chips in that basket. And then maybe even our super funds would grow large. But Daniel today in chapter 2 
speaks to us on the interaction of Christianity and culture. And he speaks a warning, a warning to his own people who are surrounded by and live in the largest superpower of their time, a superpower that calls them to assimilate completely. So Daniel writes, so to persuade them and, to, and you to not assimilate, to not change, to stick with God over culture, to not get sucked in by that advertising pool and that great song. And Daniel chapter 2 does this by pointing out two points. So if you're the ones that like to write notes, pair. God is not like the gods of the Babylonians. And then, God and his kingdom will be established. We're going to begin with our first point. And let me just flag for you now, if you're one that likes to take notes, that this point has two sub-points, so you need to leave extra room. <clears throat> Compare the pair. God is not like the God, gods of the Babylonians. And we see this through the first 23 verses because it begins with Nebuchadnezzar's dream, a dream that troubles him, causes him to not sleep at all. And if you were a Jew in this time, this is a story that's not unfamiliar. It tale of their ancestors with Joseph and Pharaoh, where similar things happen. There's that king who can't sleep, who has dreams which are quite vivid, and then from God's people comes the only one who is able to provide. And so from the get-go, if you were one of God's people, even in the first few lines, you know where this is all going. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't. He has no idea about Joseph and Pharaoh. He is lost and confused by his dream. And so who does he bring in? He brings in his dream team. The magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers. They're all the magic guys that deal with dreams and gods. They represent all the power of Babylon. <clears throat> because Nebuchadnezzar knows that this dream is important and it might have come from God. And it might be there to help him. And so he brings in all the ones connected with all the learning and all the gods of Babylon that we saw in chapter 1. And the discussion between them goes, like, begins well. He says to them, I have had a dream that troubles me. To the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. But the king, he's not wasting any time. And it may be because this dream has kept him up all night and he's as sleep deprived as a new mum. But he wants to know that interpretation and guarantee that it's true. So he turns up the stake snob all the way to maximum. The king replies to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turn into rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honour. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. itself and its interpretation. That way, I'll know that you have access to the source of the dream and then I can trust your interpretation. And our passage is really clear. 
the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers cannot. They even try to ask again, maybe a little bit more nicely, maybe throw in a please, because they know they cannot do what has been asked. And why? Why can't they do it? Well, verse 10 and 11 answers that for us. They answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. The king is right. Only the source of the dream can again show the dream and its interpretation. The gods of Babylon, though they are many, and though Babylon is the city of the gates of heaven in their mind, they don't have access to the gods. So before we even get to Daniel in our passage, you're already meant to be disappointed. Babylon, its king, and all their wise men are useless. The great city is great until it isn't anything. I've lost my place. Hmm. Oh, wait. Their king is crazy. The magician's are powerless. If you assimilated, if you were Daniel in chapter 1 and you assimilated, you're dead in chapter 2 because you gave up on Yahweh and he's the only one who can save here. And so, compare the pair. The thousand gods of Babylon in the great city versus Yahweh, the God of Israel. And Yahweh, what makes Yahweh so different? These are our two sub-points. Firstly, it's because he does dwell with humans. Daniel includes that line for us from the wise men. Verse 11, what the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. That they're both they're right and they're wrong. Only the gods can reveal the dream. But there is a God who does dwell with his people. Yahweh does that. For the Israelites, they're hearing this, they know who that is. He does live among humans. He made that possible with his people. He came and he dwelt with them, even initiated his dwelling with them. He deals with their sin, which separates them from him, and he makes them clean so they can continue to dwell with him. He loves them, and he dwells with his people. But even more so, some 600 years after Daniel, he came down and humbled himself in Jesus. God, who came and became human, who took on humanity upon himself. And not just for fun, but to deal with our sin completely. A God who is far away, to whom you have no access, but Jesus who came near, gives us hope and assurance because he not only understands us completely, but he can deal with sin in our place as a human 
we're meant to be disappointed with Babylon and its gods, for they do not compare at all with Yahweh, the God of Israel. But there's more, because the narrative continues. The king orders all the wise men to be killed, because they're all useless to him now. And that includes Daniel. But with tact and wisdom, Daniel arranges the time to meet the king. He then goes and meets with them, because they know that they are powerless in this moment. For only God can save them. And God does. They pray to him and he reveals the mystery to Daniel in a vision. And so Daniel praises God. And we're given Daniel's prayer because he outlines again for us why God is not comparable with the gods of Babylon. So from verse 20, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness. And can praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we have asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Yahweh is not like the Babylonian gods because he dwells with humans. And then the second comparison from that is that God is unlike those Babylonian gods because he controls all things and all kings. Nothing is unknown to him. Because from this dream, if you were disappointed before, the gap becomes even wider. And Daniel's prayer points that out. Because Yahweh controls everything. Put a Babylon, all kings exist and are enthroned because he puts them there. And that means he's got everything sorted. Babylon has many, many gods because they are powerless. Their gods can't do anything, let alone everything. Because they have a God for harvest, a God for war, a God for this and a God for that. Because in their system, no God is powerful enough to do everything, let alone much. But not Daniel's God, not Yahweh. Because he made all things. Daniel writes this prayer of his to remind those who might be tempted to follow after Babylon and its gods that the God of their ancestors is the true God and that he is in complete control. Trust in him. And we'll see this clearly in the dream itself. So Daniel comes to the king, verses 24 through to 28. And it's almost meant to be funny. Daniel says to the soldier who's come to him, Take me to the king. I will interpret the dream. So Daniel gets introduced to the king. I have found a man from Judah who can interpret the dream. The king asks Daniel, Are you able to tell me the dream and interpret it? And Daniel says, No. Okay. Hmm. But there is a God who is in heaven. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place. And this was your dream. 
But Daniel doesn't even jump straight back into the dream. He again reiterates and re-emphasizes that God has given the dream, showing you what's ahead. And this mystery has been revealed not because Daniel's the wisest, so that you may know this. And the dream, while it comes to Nebuchadnezzar, isn't only for him. If anything, it came to show him, to show us the Babylonians' weakness, to show Babylon's weakness. And that's going to help us to know and understand our second point, that it's God and his kingdom that will be established. So Daniel retells the dream. Nebuchadnezzar is in his dream, and in front of him is a giant statue. Absolutely amazing. Like the Statue of Liberty, or the Genghis Khan statue in Mongolia. The kind that looking up at makes your neck hurt and gets you dizzy. But it's it's a weird statue. It's a mix. Head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze and legs of iron, feet of iron mixed with clay. But then there's this rock, and it's cut to shape, but not by human hands. It strikes the iron and clay feet and shatters it, bringing it down. Kind of like me bumping my toe at the middle of the night. You just collapse. The whole statue shatters into dust with which the wind just blows away without a trace. Grows into a huge mountain, filling the whole earth. And then Daniel interprets the vision, which I'm very glad for, because it's really difficult even with the interpretation. And it starts by putting Nebuchadnezzar in his place. God has made him king of everything. It's a nice place to be put. He has power and dominion, might and glory. God says, in your hands is all mankind. The beasts and birds, they all come to you. It's almost meant to read like a divine kind of position. He feeds, somewhat reflecting Psalm 8. Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. But after him, after his death, will come another kingdom, inferior to his, and then another one of bronze, which rules the whole earth, and then the iron kingdom, which smashes everything. But even that kingdom is mixed. And all these images point to the future kingdoms which come after Babylon. Persia, Greece, Rome... But if we stop there and we're just awestruck that God is in control, such that he outlines the future kingdoms for us as if they're but puppets in his hand, it doesn't go far enough. <clears throat> because then we become like Nebuchadnezzar, who focuses on the statue, and next week we're going to see where that takes him. We must go further. So yes, God is in control. Completely. It's him who raises up these kingdoms and allows the next one to come after the next. But the focus is on God's own kingdom. Read to me verses 44 onwards. 
In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. God has shown that even though Babylon is great, it won't last forever. And if you were in Babylon and you saw how magnificent it was, that's what you'd be thinking. How could this ever end? But it will be replaced by the kingdom that comes afterwards. They won't be even as awesome. But even then we must not focus on, because the point is not them, the rock. And from this side of Jesus, it's worth, to, it's worth noting that the rock strikes the kingdom at its toes. That's the Roman Empire. For it is then that Jesus, the rock, and the king of God's kingdom comes into the world. Even some 600 years prior to Jesus, the time that he comes is shown clearly. The mighty Babylon, the Persian Empire, the Greeks and Rome all shatter and blow away because of God's kingdom. And it alone remains. Now the straightforward warning, a glimmer of the future. If you were an Israelite in the glorious city of Babylon, would you default? Would you change over to Babylon's side? Would you defect and ignore God's law and take the easy route of the gods of Babylon. Well, not only did those gods and the wise men of Babylon fail in comparison in the first part, their kingdoms will all fall. They fail. Their gods are forgotten and their cities are turned to dust. And those that come after it, which will again boast about their might and glory, likewise are all dust in the end, all into Bitcoin, if you knew that in five years it ceases to exist. It's foolishness. To apply this then, we need to first compare the pair. Because if we don't see Jesus clearly, if you don't see that rock clearly, if you don't know him and what his death and resurrection has accomplished for you, it's easier to be led astray. But if we see Jesus clearly, and we know how great is the salvation that he offers, then when the world and its temptations come, because in the end they all fade, They will rightly look weak and useless in comparison to Jesus if we see him clearly. From there we're reminded that God is in complete control. And if it's his kingdom which remains, then in this life we have nothing to fear. In the last week, 
the Taliban retook the Afghan capital. And for the Christians there, they are now under intense persecution. And for them, there is real pressure to jump ship. To give up on Jesus, they remember that their future is secure in him. There may be pain, there may be suffering, and even death. But the rock that is established forever is God's kingdom. There's no threat. Because we followed a Messiah who is resurrected and who will raise us. We must only keep looking at what Jesus has done for us. Because through his death, we can dwell with him forever. The flip side to that is if we give up on the rock, we will join those who are crushed by it. And so lastly, what does it look like to live this out? Do we live with trust but in God alone? That we reject the parts of our culture which are opposed to his word? We need to live and relate to our culture, knowing that unless they too come to know Jesus, they face destruction. Do we put our money and time into helping others know about Jesus, being generous, rather than living as if this life and the building up of your own kingdom is what truly matters? We need to practice now while the stakes are still low. Recently, Steve McAlpine, um, pastor in Perth, wrote a book about living in a culture which is opposed to Jesus. He wisely said that if we don't talk about Jesus to our friends, colleagues and neighbours now, while there's a little bit of pressure, then when that pressure builds up. We need to practice living for Jesus now, stepping out for him now, living differently with our sights set on him clearly so that, when, so that way we'll know where to look when things get tougher, when the persecution mounts. And we can't do it in our own strength. We need to rest on God. But we can do so now and into the future, knowing that Jesus and his kingdom will remain. The words from the old song, Turn your eyes towards Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. For For the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, we pray to you because of what your Son has already accomplished. Please help us to look to Jesus, not to our culture, 
Help us by the small and insignificant things that they offer us in this life. May we just love you more and live for you more each day. May we ever look to you now and practice for the future when things get harder. But we can't do this in our own strength. So please help us, Lord. In the name of your Son. Amen.